And um, he's got a great book out that's just a good basic orientation called um, Basic Bible Interpretation, a Practical Guide to Discovering Biblical Truth. And he wrote in his initial chapter on the what and the why of biblical interpretation, uh, actually he, he, he states hermeneutics, as mentioned earlier, is the science and art of interpreting the Bible. Another way to define hermeneutics is this. It is the science that it relates to the objective principles and art, that is the task or the application of those principles, by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. Then he has a quote from um, Milton Terry. Milton Terry wrote a classic work that has been around for a century now on uh, biblical hermeneutics stating basically the same thing, that hermeneutics is both a science and an art, and defining it as science, meaning the use or or the elucidation of principles for hermeneutics. And then art is the application of that. Now, there's a recent book out by Bob Thomas, Dr. Robert L. Thomas, who was professor of Greek and New Testament at First Talbot, and then the Master's Seminary for many years. Dr. Thomas spoke here uh, about six years ago, I think it was. It was either the second or the third uh, Chafer Conference, and those recordings are up on the Internet, and I encourage you to listen to those because he, he this is his area of specialty. And he took Dr. Dr. Zook to task because Dr. Zook in this initial chapter defines hermeneutics as an art which is the uh, the task or the application of the principles to the text. But then um, Zuck goes on to define exegesis as the determination of the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context, which is the application of the principles. And it may seem like a fine point to people, but you can't define hermeneutics as the science and the art, that is, the application of the principles, and then define exegesis as the application of the principles. You're overlapping your definitions. So hermeneutics is really the elucidation and identification of the principles of interpretation. Exegesis, then, is the application of those principles in the study of the text. And I think that um, Thomas has a good, some good, uh, good points on that. So we covered this last time. We talked about the first rule of interpretation. This was articulated by uh, David Cooper. David Cooper is uh, uh, would be known by many of you because he uh, was a primary uh, teacher of uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum when he first became became a believer. And a lot of, shall I say, idiosyncrasies in Arnold's theology derived from David Cooper. Most of the time, he's pretty squared away, but there's a few little glitches here and there where I would take issue uh, with Arnold, and you can trace those back to David L. Cooper. But this is a great, great summation of the basic principle. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, read the text at its at its surface value, its surface meaning, what, and that involves understanding the words and their meanings 
uh, grammar and its significance and syntax, which has to do with not just grammar, but the order and the arrangement of the words uh, together. Uh, and, and we should just take the word at face value unless there is something in the context that clearly indicates that something more is going on than just sort of a surface identification. For example, when it talks about Jesus talking in parables or it's in poetry. And if you look at your, if you were to open your Bible, if in most Bibles, if you just open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, or even Genesis chapter chapter 2, right after God uh, cr- created the woman from Adam's side and brought her to him, we read in verse 23 of chapter 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you look at that, it should be set apart as poetry. And if you look at... at um, the judgment that God announces on, on the serpent, the woman, and the man in Genesis 3:14 through 16, and then again in the second half of 17 and through 19, that's set off in terms of poetry. If you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, so many of the poets, they're set apart in, in, as, as prophecy. I mean, as uh, much of prophecy is set apart in poetry. So you have to understand something about that form. Now, this time, this week, you started reading, I think, in uh, Hendrick's book, the chapters dealing with uh, <clears throat> different uh, types of literature. Maybe that was last time. What type of literature is this? And I will I will talk about some of the things you read um, for last time and for this time and next time, probably starting towards the end of next time and on uh, beyond that. Uh, I want to cover some other things that aren't in your reading. Uh, I did that last week and, and this week as well. Just a review since only two people showed up last week. Uh, most of you forgot about it or didn't have it in your calendar or something of that nature. By the way, we will meet next Sunday night. Then the next Sunday night, which I believe is the 29th, we won't meet. Then we will meet. And that's the only time we won't meet until the um, our last meeting will be the what would that be 15, 14, the twelfth of January right that's a Sunday that'll be our last meeting the only time we'll miss is is the the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's and then I'm leaving on January the fifteenth uh, to go to Kiev and I'll get back on the thirty first but we won't start up on the second we'll wait till the ninth to start up in February so most of January. You'll have those three Sundays off. And that'll be good to do some additional reading. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. And that's really what we mean by literal interpretation. Historical, grammatical, literal interpretation doesn't mean that you ignore figures of speech or that you ignore... Um, things like that, but it means that that you take things in their normal, ordinary use uh, of language, um, unless the facts of the contents uh, indicate clearly otherwise. That's the most important thing we covered last time. Now this time, I want to start by looking at qualifications for interpreters. What's important for an interpreter? One thing I didn't set up, let me go back over here. And 
I've been having trouble with this lately. Okay, that's working fine. Get out of that now. Everything else seems to be working fine. Okay. Why can't I get Lagos to show up? I'm going to have to re reboot my Lagos. I'll take a minute. Okay, what are the qualifications for interpreters? The first thing, we'll get back to the slides in a minute. The first thing is that a person must be a believer. They must be born again because Scripture teaches that the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. I can't, since I can't pull that up, uh, Lagos up right now, um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Second Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, chapter two, verse fourteen. Second Corinthians two fourteen. First uh, Corinthians two fourteen. Excuse me. First Corinthians two fourteen. I'm not going to get distracted by this, but there's a lot of lessons for interpretation in um, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 chapter, verses 9 through 14. And a lot of, there are a lot of principles that can be um, identified in this particular section, one of the most of which is context and how words are used. But another one is that the word pneuma translated spirit, which can also be translated air, wind, breath, Holy Spirit, human spirit, and then it has different nuances for the uh, human spirit. It can refer to the immaterial part of man or it can refer to a part of man that is not present until they're saved because in spiritual death they're missing part of their immaterial nature, which is sometimes identified as spirit. And when they are saved, then they acquire this. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 we read, But the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Here we go. Coming up on the screen. How does this uh, resolution look back there, Eddie? This look good? Hmm? Well, I haven't opened it yet, and I can expand it. I'm just... Yeah, I know. That's better. Yeah. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if we look at this in terms of the interlinear, we see that the word translated natural is the word sukikos in the Greek. Sukikos comes from the root word suke, which means soul. Spirit is the word pneuma. So the word sukikos has to do with uh, the soulish man, if we were to translate it literally. In fact, if you look at different uh, verses where this is used, it's only used three or four times in the New Testament. 
and or maybe five or six, but it's not translated consistently the same way. So Sukikas here as is, uh, is contrasted contextually with the spirit. The natural, the Sukikas man can't receive the things of the spirit because they're foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually pneumaticos from pneuma. They're spiritually discerned, which would indicate that there's something the unbeliever doesn't have that he needs to have in order to be able to understand the word. Now, there's a uh, another passage that we can go to that uh, indicates the, the meaning of this, and this is in Jude... Uh, Jude 19, is that what it is? I always, there we go. Describing these unbelievers in Jude that are the false teachers, and the New American, or New King James translates it sensual people. The New American Standard, I think, translates it worldly people. Now there's a huge difference between being worldly and, and being uh, These are clearly unbelievers from the context, and here we have them described as sukikas. These are sukikas persons who uh, cause divisions, and then we have an appositional phrase here that describes what a sukikas person is. He doesn't have the spirit. But notice the translators made an interpretive decision. The last word there in the Greek, they actually uh, uppercase the p, the p at the beginning of pneuma. There's no uppercase in the Greek. Greek manuscripts are either uncials, which are all caps, or they are minuscules, which are all lowercase. The Greek manuscripts don't have spaces between the words. They don't have punctuation. Uh, Greek grammar helps you define what the subject, uh, what the subject, the direct object, indirect object is, syntax, everything. And so we have a statement here that a sukikos person is a person not having spirit. Notice there's no article in front of the word pneuma. So it just says not having spirit. You might be able to translate, again, this would be an interpretive decision after you study, that it's not having a spirit. Now, I would argue that that's the context here because this, a lot of the people that are referred to in this context, even though it's immediately referring to the false teachers that are there, it also has a secondary extension to some of the Old Testament people that are uh, used as illustrations in Jude. That could be debated. But in, in the uh, 1 Corinthians passage, it is clearly building its Paul's building his explanation off of a quotation from 1 Corinthians 2:9 but as it is written i has not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which god has prepared for him that is a quote from isaiah so he's taking a a quote from isaiah to illustrate a principle related to understanding the word. Now, that principle, for that principle to be true, both in Isaiah and in the church age, 
it can't be referring to the Holy Spirit because no one in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit in the way that we have the Holy Spirit in the church age. There's only a few Old Testament leaders had the Holy Spirit and it was related to leadership uh, leadership ability in relation to the uh, leading of Israel. So uh, this is one of those passages, and I've got detailed studies on it out on, out on the uh, Internet that you can listen to. But what this is saying is that the natural man, the soulish man, if you will, who's an unbeliever, does not ha- have the ability to receive or accept the things of the Spirit of God because he's still spiritually dead. He does not have a human spirit, as it were. When we're regenerated, we are born again. Something new is acquired that is given birth to in the process of spiritual birth that, for lack of a better term, we refer to as the human spirit to distinguish it from the Holy Spirit. There are several passages that talk about one of the most important, Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to distinguish between the soul and the spirit. In a lot of passages, the words are used as synonyms, but in several passages, they are used in distinction, and that clearly supports the view that there is a an element of man's uh, immaterial nature that isn't a spirit, it's a soul. So we have the uh, unregenerate person cannot study the word. And what, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that he, he may be able to study the grammar. He may be able to do word studies. And if you look at some of the um, resources put out by Europeans, uh, you may even question the salvation of many of those theologians, like the men who wrote in Kittle's uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. But um, they're able to do basic scholarly work. It just in terms of understanding the ultimate uh, spiritual impact of a passage, they can't do that. So their theology is going to be is going to be weak. So first of all, a person has to be. Uh, born again or regenerate. They have to have a human spirit. Without the human spirit, they can't truly understand uh, the word. Secondly, we have to approach the word with a respect for the word itself. We have to have, we have to honor the word. This is as God's word that God has revealed this to us and we are approaching it. Also, this will lead to the second principle, which is approaching it uh, in humility. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, in relation to um, uh, Timothy and his training by his mother and grandmother, from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The idea that the word of God is holy, it's separate, it's distinct, it's unique. The scriptures need to be treated as something different from all other literature. The third element is our attitude. The student has to have a teachable attitude. We have to have humility, recognizing that we may have ideas that are wrong. Uh, We may have been taught things that are wrong, but we have to always be willing to let the Word of God correct our thinking. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Word of God is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, that is instruction, for, uh, for correction, for rebuke, and for instruction in righteousness. 
so that we have to be willing to be corrected by the Word of God. And this, in a lifetime of study, there are going to be many, many times when we're going to be corrected by the Word of God. So we have to have that attitude of humility and teachability as we dig into the Scriptures to see what the Scripture teaches. Fourth thing is that we should also approach the Scripture with a desire to be corrected, that the Lord teach us and open our eyes to what's in the Word, that um, that we are going to have our uh, our preconceived ideas uh, tested, evaluated, and we may go through various changes. One of the things I always see with seminary students is about the end of their second year, when they're called you know sophomores, sophomores in any institution are wise fools, and they're called sophomores for a reason because at that point they think they know more. Than not, and it's especially true in Bible college or seminary because the standard Bible college or seminary student at the end of his second or third year has been exposed to so much more and so many different viewpoints that they often succumb to arrogance. And I've had this happen to me. I've seen it happen with any number of pastors. You have uh, people in the congregation who then come along and say, "Well, haven't you ever read such and so?" You know, and I, I've had this happen since I've been at this church, and, you know, I, I read that. I wrote book reviews on it. I, uh, you know, academically eviscerated the author of that book before the person who accused me of not reading it was ever born. You know, it, it's amazing, but this is what happens is they, they all of a sudden they read some book and they discover something that, oh, I never heard of this before. I've had this brilliant insight. And they come and they act like, well, because you, I've never heard you talk about it or I've never heard you comment on it, you must be ignorant of this brilliant author that I just discovered. And um, I've, I've seen that happen. I was guilty of that when I was a, about my third year, fourth year of seminary. It's it's an occupational hazard with a seminary student. In fact, I often think that uh, I remember hearing this when I got out of seminary. Uh, I think Chuck Swindoll said that it takes five to eight years to get seminary out of out of the graduate because they, they just need to sort of uh, uh, get back, get their feet on the ground again and get back into reality and have the time to think through a lot of what they learned in seminary, because it's it's like drinking water out of a fire hose. You just learn so much, and you think when you come out you've just acquired all this knowledge, but it takes time to really understand it, assimilate it, and put it all together. So we have to constantly have that that humility and that willingness to be corrected and to let our our thinking be 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 uh, uh, straightened out. Fifth. In this church age, we have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that is teaching us and guiding us and instructing us. I think there's some problems with the way that's often presented. We'll talk about one particular verse in just a minute. But we have to recognize that we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But we have to recognize that's not in a mystical sense. Just because you sit down and you pray that God the Holy Spirit would be guiding and directing you in your understanding of this difficult passage doesn't mean that, that you don't have to study it. It doesn't mean that when you close your books after five or six hours that day that you've gotten to the end of your study on that passage. It may be a difficult passage, and you might not be able to really get close to its meaning 
for another 10 or 15 years, depending on where you are when you get started on that passage. God the Holy Spirit may take you through a lot before you really come to understand that passage. I've been in the ministry for 30 years. I first started studying Bible study methods probably 40 years ago. And and this coming Sunday, I've never taught through the Sermon on the Mount. I've taught through parts of it. But I've been um, uh, going through a lot of study on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one of the most difficult passages. I, I thought some things in Revelation were tough. But the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most difficult um, passages to interpret in, in the New Testament. And it has, it's, it's, it's a real challenge to go through that. So we have to take time, a lot of prayer, but just because you pray doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean that you're infallible or inerrant. Just because you're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that's not a guarantee of inerrancy and infallibility. That's only true of the authors of Scripture when they first wrote the Scripture in the original manuscripts. So... uh being in fellowship, being filled by the Spirit is not a guarantee of accuracy when you get through with your Bible study. The Holy Spirit is guiding you, but you only spent three hours on the passage. You may have a hundred hours to go, and you just started down the road. A second thing about the Holy Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in interpretation doesn't mean that he's going to give you some sort of hidden uh, meaning that is in contradiction to the normal literal meaning of the passage. That's really important. I've heard all kinds of nonsense come out of Sunday school teachers and small group leaders' mouths because they just, you know, and, and, and to be fair to them, in a lot of cases they're put in a position of responsibility to teach something they don't have the training to do to really teach, and they're businessmen and they're working 60 hours a week and they just grab some favorite commentary off the shelf and read what that person says and that's what they go with. But they've never had the time to really do it or they try within some theological concept or, or, or situations, context, they just pray, God, give me the right words and then they just basically just go with whatever comes off the top of their head, which is usually wrong. Um, that because they haven't taken the time to do the work necessary to, to understand a passage. So the work of the Spirit is not going to give a meaning to the passage that contradicts its literal, grammatical, historical meaning. And he's not going to give an application to the passage that contradicts the interpretation of the passage. Uh, I'm jumping ahead here. Third thing, a Christian who is... Uh, living in sin is and who is committed to certain sinful, arrogant patterns is more susceptible to making inaccurate interpretations of the scripture because his motivation is to defend his own position rather than to honestly seek the meaning of the text and to submit to the to the Lord. Um, passage that many people bring up is John sixteen thirteen. Let me go back over here to uh, pull this up on Logos. John sixteen thirteen. 
Who's talking in John 16? Anybody off the top of your head? Who's talking? Jesus is talking. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Now, when is he talking to his disciples? When does this event take place? No, but you're right. It's a discourse. It's the upper room discourse. It's the night before he goes to the cross. So he's giving his disciples a lot of last-minute information related to what's about to happen and related to the spiritual life of the church age. And, uh, and this is part of the upper room, dis- all part of the upper room discourse. And he sa- he tells them about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot in John 14, 15, 16 about the coming of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he says, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of the distinction between interpretation and application. Who's uh, Jesus is talking... He's talking to his 11 disciples. Judas has already left to go betray him. He's talking to the 11 disciples. Now, frequently you'll see this verse cited as a verse that relates or applies to all believers because the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Now, if you just take that phrase out of context... There is a truth to that, that the Holy Spirit does guide and direct us. But is that what Jesus is saying in John 16, 13? And I don't think so. If you look at the last phrase, if we were to break this down, he says the Holy Spirit will tell you things to come. Is the Holy Spirit telling you things to come today? Absolutely not. That has no application to anyone except for the disciples that were in front of him. Now, you could say, well, there's an implication there or a secondary application in that as the Holy Spirit revealed these things to them and they wrote it down, then we learn it from them. Yes, that's true. But that's not really what, that, that's sort of pushing the envelope of what application means. Uh, th- this only applies to the Holy Spirit. For example, when God directs Abraham to walk up and down the length and the breadth and the width of the land to see the land and to recon the land that God is going to give to him, does that apply to us? Not at all. Because, God, A, God's not giving us a piece of real estate. Uh, this is extremely limited command directed only to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can get real spiritual and say, ah, but it applies to obedience. You so generalize the principle that you're, you're, you're 20 stories above the text at that point. Uh, it has no application to anybody but Abraham. It may have an implication for other people in terms of obedience or something like that, but only Abraham can obey that command. Nobody else can obey that command. That's why it's important to determine who is, who's being addressed. So here the idea is that the spirit of truth and that word, that phrase is used of the Holy Spirit several times because he's the one who is the member of the Trinity responsible for giving revelation. So this, when the spirit of truth has come, he's going to guide you. That you refers to those 11. It doesn't, the Holy Spirit isn't going to be guiding anybody else. In, in the same context, uh, the Holy Spirit is 
Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to uh, bring to their memory all the things about his ministry. Now, that doesn't apply to you and me. He's, we weren't there to witness it. How's he going to bring it to our memory? We have no memory of it. We weren't there. So uh, these passages relate only to the, the, the disciples. And he's going to guide the disciples into all truth because they're going to, some of them are going to be the ones who are going to be writing scripture. And they have a unique and distinct role in the early church. It is a, a certainty that there were only uh, 11, those 11 disciples plus the apostle Paul. There were others mentioned and called apostles, but you have to be careful as to uh, an apostle is someone who's commissioned by someone to uh, carry out a particular task. You always have to define who commissioned them. Barnabas, Junius, and others were commissioned by local churches to take the gospel out as missionaries. That's not an apostle with a capital A. That's an apostle with a lowercase a. It's not the spiritual gift of apostle. It's just someone who sent out apostello. So um, the Holy Spirit does, the illumination of the Holy Spirit really comes out more of of the 1 Corinthians 2 passage than this passage. Uh, A fifth point about the Holy Spirit is that uh, the, the place or the role of the Holy Spirit in interpreting Scripture means that he doesn't give us sudden, intuitive hot flashes into the meaning of Scripture. We don't just look at it and go, oh! You know, now maybe after 40 hours of studying and mental sweat, we go, oh, yeah, now I get it. But you don't just pick up your Bible and read it, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit just hits you with it. That's Some people have even thought that's what the gift of pastor-teacher is like. Well, you're the gift of pastor-teacher. You can just pick up the Bible and read it, and you know what it means. Wait a minute, the gift of pastor-teacher is a leadership communication gift, not a reading interpretation gift. It's amazing how many people have misunderstood that. Uh, Six, the Spirit's role in interpretation means that the Bible was given to be understood by all believers. All church-age believers have the Holy Spirit, and by walking by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in and through the process of Bible study to help us understand the meaning of the text. But it's the Holy Spirit isn't a shortcut to the meaning of Scripture. He's going to work through the normal processes. So these are that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, it's important to have and listen to good teachers and to read good Bible teachers, really good Bible teachers, men who are who fit these qualifications and men who are well-trained in the languages. There are exceptions to that. Lewis Berry Chafer was a great Bible teacher, but he didn't know the original languages, but he recognized that was a severe limitation upon him, and he was really dependent upon many, many others. But the scriptures emphasize the fact that we are to listen to good teaching. For example, the 3,000 disciples that were saved on the day of Pentecost were told in Acts 2.42, devoted or committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was a high priority for them. Every time they could, they were listening to the instruction of the apostles. Peter and John went into the temple courts almost daily to teach the people. 
And they continue to teach the people day after day as you continue to read through the account in Acts chapter 2. And when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, they taught people. They taught people in Antioch. They taught people day after day as they traveled. Paul was teaching them the word of God, for example, in Corinth and each of the places that he went. In Ephesus, we're told in Acts 20.20 that Paul taught from house to house. And he was even accused of teaching all men everywhere. And even when he was in Rome, and we'll see this when we come to the end of our Acts study, he boldly taught the Lord Jesus, even though he was under house arrest. People came to him, and they taught them the word. So these are the qualifications for uh, teaching uh, or for studying the word. First of all, you have to be saved. You have to have humility. You have to have, I mean, a respect for the word. You have to have humility. Uh, you have to approach the scriptures with the desire to be corrected and for God the Holy Spirit to overhaul your life. And that you, fifth, you should be uh, uh, um, uh, dependent upon God the Holy Spirit in learning the word. And then sixth, to listen to and read uh, good Bible teachers. They'll differ. Then you have to be able to develop the skill of discernment, which is understanding if this pastor who studies the Word says this verse means X, and this pastor who studies the Word and pretty much agrees with the other pastor most of the time, but he thinks it means Y, what led him to think it means what he thinks it means, and what did the other guy, what, what are his reasons? And then you have to compare and contrast those reasons. That's where doing theology uh, and, and critical thinking really develops. And I do that. Um, one of the critical issues that we get into in, in our study in Matthew is understanding the meaning of the kingdom of God, especially in the kingdom of kingdom parables in Matthew 13. And one of the two of the great Bible teachers at Dallas Seminary was Dwight Pentecost and, um, and Stan Toussaint. And their offices were next door to each other. And they have been friends. I mean, Dr. P is 94, 95 now, and uh, Stan's a little bit younger. He's only about 80 or 81. And uh, I just saw him last week at the, um, at the uh, pre-trib conference. But they argued and debated the meaning of the kingdom of God in the Gospels for 50 years. I think Dr. Toussaint's right. But it's taken me years of studying through these issues because they're not simple issues. And you have a lot of people who come up and think, you know, it just means this. How many hours have you put into that, buddy? Oh, well, you know, I just heard a great sermon by so-and-so. Yeah, well, you know, go spend 500 hours, read 300 books, and then come back and we can have an intelligent conversation on the topic. But these are not simple, easy things to, to work through. But that's the process of a Bible study. Okay, we're going to take a break. It's about 16 minutes till, so we'll take about a six-minute break, come back at 10 till, and then we're going to get into a study of the history of how the Bible has been interpreted. We'll cover from the early church and before Old Testament interpretation. Um, we'll study up through the Reformation, up to the Reformation tonight, and then next week we'll come back in the first half, we'll finish that. So we're just going to do a survey of the history of biblical interpretation. All right, let's break. <laughs> 